this is Mike Dilt with the Relax Back UK Show. On the Relax Back UK Show, we explore all kinds of health topics, so keep listening and enjoy the ride. Hello and welcome to the Relax Back UK Show. This week, the first topic is celiac disease with dietitian Nigel Denby. We reckon there's about 125,000 people in the UK currently diagnosed with celiac disease. But really worryingly, we reckon there's about 500,000, half a million people who have no idea they have this issue. We look at all aspects of the the disease, including the many, many people who are undiagnosed and what that could mean for them in the future. Then this is part of the contents of something... But what? Is Mythloxal, which has unique antibacterial activity. These are those markers that relate to uh, anti-inflammatory effects. It is Manuka honey. And we hear all about the wonders of Manuka from John, John Rawcliffe, CEO of the Unique Manuka Factor Honey Association. So please do stay with me for a great show. The Relaxed Back UK show is available on UKHealthRadio.com, which is the number one health talk radio. It's all ava- also available as a podcast on the usual platforms and if listening if listening to a podcast version please do like and share now on with the show I was a bit worried to be talking about celiac disease with Nigel Denby, a dietitian from Harley Street at home and the reason why I was a bit worried I was concerned I was going to get celiac disease mixed up with celeriac a vegetable and usually it's the interviewer who puts the guest at ease but here the guest was putting me at ease luckily mike if you do have celiac disease you can eat celeriac but we might come on to that in a little while <laughs> okay all right so um nigel you're a you're a dietitian maybe the first thing to do is is, is clear up exactly what a dietitian is uh what they do and also, what, what's the difference between a dietitian and a, and a nutritionist? Because for a lot of people, that, you know, that sounds like, oh, that's got to be the same thing, isn't it? Yeah, it, absolutely. It brings a lot of confusion. Personally, I've, I've, you know, the title dietitian, I think, throws dread into most people uh, in that, you know, you're going to be the diet police. But the reason I chose to become a dietitian and not a nutritionist or a nutritional therapist or any of the other titles that tend to be associated with nutrition is because registered dietitian is a protected title. It gives you a guarantee of a minimum level of qualification of degree qualification. Dietitians have to be registered with um, the Health Professions Council. We work to a code of conduct. We have to be members of the British Dietetic Association and we work within the NHS and privately. There are wonderful nutritionists around and there are also absolute cowboys out, out there. Unfortunately, the the, the um, title of a dietitian of of a nutritionist is completely unprotected so right. you can you can set yourself up as a nutritionist tomorrow with no qualification at all in the same way that and I somebody can charge people is, for advice when I've done that <laughs> 
a, a fortune if you wanted to. And and what worries me always is you can give them any advice you like. If I start telling people that they need to go and gather mushrooms at the bottom of a mountain at 6am with the morning dew on and that that's going to help them lose weight, I'd be struck off. Right. Um, but if a nutritionist chose to do that, they can say whatever they like. Okay. Now, we've, it's gone now. I don't know if you heard that. My um, my son's making toast in the kitchen. We had a little um, impact from the alarm. I think he may have stopped now. Um, okay, Doug. His big sister is there, so I'm not too worried that the house is going to burn down. But if I suddenly run off, uh, it's because probably there are flames. But I think we're okay. Um, good. Right. So celiac disease, that's, that's the topic. Um, what is it? Well, it's it's essentially an intolerance to a protein that is found in wheat. Um, the protein is called gluten. We think it well, we know it's a really widely underdiagnosed disorder. It's triggered in people who have a genetic susceptibility uh, to the protein gluten. And um, it's a lifelong condition, can't be cured, but can be very effectively managed. One of the difficulties with celiac disease is that the symptoms often look like other issues. Right. Or in many people, the symptoms are almost negligible. So it's very, very difficult uh, for some people to even register that there's a problem. Okay. Um, but, you know, untreated celiac disease with or without symptoms is not good news. All right. So well, you've mentioned the word symptoms a couple of times. What 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 are the giveaway okay. uh, symptoms that someone might have it? So uh, the giveaway symptoms would be um, uh, all sort of gastrointestinal issues. So urgency, running to the loo, diarrhea, very frequent uh, diarrhea throughout the day often accompanied with weight loss, often accompanied with um, fatigue and lethargy because many people who have um, symptomatic celiac disease will also not be absorbing nutrients very well at all. So they'll begin to appear like somebody who is malnourished. One of the first things that you might expect to see is anemia. And when someone has iron deficiency anemia, they usually are completely lacking in energy, just feeling totally drained and, and, and washed out. But, the, and this is where I suppose the complexity comes, Mike, that you or I could also appear as somebody with celiac disease presenting with no symptoms at all. Um, and it could be anywhere in between that. So you might find that sometimes you have symptoms when you eat gluten or wheat containing foods, but other times it, it doesn't seem to affect you. So it's really difficult to pinpoint it. And it's often mixed up with irritable bowel syndrome, which of course is a, a, is a, a disease or a, a, a collection of symptoms that we know affects about one in five adults at any time in the UK. So really easy to think, oh, I've got a touch of IBS and uh, ignore the fact that there might be a red flag here and something that needs a bit more investigation. Okay, so a couple of questions coming on from that. If you have celiac disease, 
but you're not showing the symptoms, you know, what's the worry? <laughs> what? Okay, absolutely. The biggest, the biggest hurdle of all. The worry is that whilst you're not necessarily exhibiting symptoms, what's going on inside is potentially problematic for, for later on. So within the gastrointestinal tract, we have these things called villi. And what they are, you, you've probably heard the analogy that the gastrointestinal tract, if it was laid out, would be the size of a football pitch. And the mm -hmm. reason it would be is because of these villi. They increase the surface area of the gastrointestinal tract. So they're like little hairs. And this is where lots of the nutrition um, is absorbed into the body. When you have celiac disease and you consume gluten, instead of those villi protruding into the gastrointestinal tra tract and giving that extended uh, surface area, they begin to flatten. And this is what causes the um, reduction in absorption but it can go on further than that as well. You can start developing things like skin conditions. Um, your bone health can be deeply affected by not absorbing calcium as well as you should. Anemia, as we mentioned. And in the extreme, we know there's a definite link between untreated celiac disease and bowel cancer. So the issue that you kind of got is, and this is the, the mystery, we just don't know why one person would be exhibiting symptoms and the other might not when the right. same thing is essentially going on internally. Okay, but for both those people, there could well be some serious complications down the line, you know, in a, in a few years time by the sounds of things. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, untreated celiac disease is no laughing matter. And we absolutely know that there are probably, we reckon there's about 125,000 people in the UK currently diagnosed with celiac disease. But really worryingly, we reckon there's about 500,000, half a million people who have no idea they have this issue. Right. So they could be storing up things like bowel cancer, anemia, osteoporosis, uh, and other delightful things for, you know, the latter part of their life. Yeah, and, and, and the real tragedy is that for, this is totally treatable, totally manageable, and therefore those, um, you know, those really unpleasant consequences of untreated celiac disease are completely unnecessary. So, yeah. the, the, you know, the key message really is, is, is get this checked. Okay. And there well, are I wanna, groups, go on. I was gonna say, I wanna come on to what you can do about it and getting checked in, in a moment, but just looking at why you get it. So you, you, you hinted, is it is it purely genetic? So, you know, if you're gonna get it, tough luck, you're gonna get it. Or is it like, if you have the genes, you're more likely to get it, but then you may develop in later life, or you might not. What, what's, what's the deal there? How does it develop? How do you get it? Well, we believe it's a lifelong condition, so you're born with it. Um, but there are certainly, uh, we, we often find that people don't present or aren't diagnosed until adulthood. Um, we, there is, uh, yes, it is a genetic disease, so it's really useful 
to think back to parents, grandparents, brothers and sisters um, who might have had gastrointestinal issues uh, like yours, if you did have some, if you have had some, even if they weren't diagnosed, that would be a good indicator that there is a genetic reason why your gut doesn't work as well as it ought to. That might require investigation. Other groups who are more prone to this are people with type 1 diabetes, people, so that's usually insulin controlled diabetes diagnosed early in life, people with an overactive thyroid, where the thyroid becomes enlarged, um, and also people with um, other genetic issues. So people with Down syndrome, for instance, would have a higher um, uh, uh, susceptibility. Interestingly, also, uh, we know that the, the genetic clusters, if you like, around the world um, are very focused on where there are people with a heritage that goes back to the Republic of Ireland. We see a higher proportion of celiac disease in the Republic of Ireland than anywhere else in the world. We have no idea why. But of course, the Irish, Irish population historically has been incredibly transient. So where you find sort of Irish communities overseas, yeah. you will also find more celiac disease. Okay. I, I did actually read an article, this is somewhat flippant, but there are, there are more Irish pubs in the rest of the world than in Ireland. Uh, <laughs> so yeah. In the least bit surprised. Yeah, so it's a community yeah. that... Uh, that travels that gets everywhere absolutely yeah yeah okay so that's that's so it's just bad luck <laughs> it is really um and i guess again the um some of the other symptoms that you might not necessarily relate to being um uh uh uh, related to your gastrointestinal tract would be just also things if you struggle to maintain a good weight if you you know if you struggle struggle to hold your weight a lot of us are struggling to lose weight but actually if you find it's a job to keep it on that's sometimes an indicator as well that um, there could be something going on um, uh, regarding celiac disease but there is, um, there are, again, without going and having tests immediately, what we don't want to do is flood, you know, the NHS with people demanding tests. Now, there are some resources that just kind of help you begin to put the jigsaw together um, and work out whether you're at risk or not. Okay, right. So, yeah, let's, let's, um, let's look at some of those. So, you know, say you have some of these symptoms we've been talking about, you know, yeah. And you think, well, all right, first, what's the next step? First place I would I would send you would be there's um, a website called Celiac Insider. And that takes you through a series of questions and helps you kind of establish your risk. So it asks you about symptoms, but it also asks you about other elements um, of your family history and things like that, which will, will help you start to work out whether this is something that you ought to pursue or not. Um, we have a brilliant charity, Celiac UK, um, here who also um, have 
brilliant information to support um, people either worrying about whether they need to get tested or people who have been diagnosed um, and now want to know how to treat the condition. Yeah. All right. Again, it's, you know, it's, in, it's really interesting. 25 years ago or so when I trained, celiac disease was, it was still easy to treat. You need a gluten-free diet. So that means you, tr you remove every element of wheat, every trace of wheat, from your diet, but that was quite a tall order. Most of the the gluten-free replacement foods like breads and biscuits and what have you were absolutely rotten. The bread was like a brick, it, you know, it was just ghastly. Um, but, and this is, a, again, this is where sometimes, you know, the, the um, issues we have about popular information around diets, there's been a massive interest in eating wheat-free or gluten-free by people who have no clinical need to do it. It's a bit fashionable. Right. And so as a result, you know, the market responds and the range of gluten-free products has gone through the roof. Now, for those people that want to eat gluten-free because, you know, it's better than a Gucci handbag, that's fine. You've got much more choice. But it's brilliant news for people with celiac disease because the range of foods you can have now are so much better. They just grow and grow. You go into any supermarket and there is a whole free from aisle that was never there before. Sure. So is it as simple as that? We're finished with the test, but let's move on. You know, if, if, yeah, yeah. if you have if you have a positive test, um, what to do about it? Do you just stop eating gluten? Is it as simple as that? It is, and it's for, it's the only condition in you know in my line of work where the only treatment is diet. It's the only thing where this is the case, and a gluten free diet will. Uh, allow your gut to restore those villi those hair-like structures will begin to uh, take back their position your absorption will of nutrients will be great and you can live a really healthy um, perfectly normal life the you do need a bit of help with it because wheat is an incredibly cheap ingredient so it's all whilst it's obvious in foods like breads, pasta, cakes, biscuits, they contain wheat. There are, wheat is used as a stabiliser in lots of foods you would never think contain wheat. Right. So things like ice cream, um, stock cubes, often will contain wheat. And that's where you just need a little bit of help. But often you can either see a dietitian and just get some help to start you off. Celiac UK has brilliant information there um, about managing your diet. There's what we call, uh, there's a way that foods are classified. So you'll be able to see immediately brands that have, uh, that are wheat free or gluten free. Okay. So is it like a switch then? If you're, if you've been suffering and you know, you're running to the loo and you know, losing weight and you know, just generally, not been very well if you then switch to a gluten-free diet is it like the next day actually you're feeling better it can be that quick mm -hmm. um certainly yeah matter of days and in fact if someone is is going to be tested 
and has assumed they might have celiac disease and been following a gluten-free diet, they actually have to start eating gluten again before they have a test because it could easily come up negative when in fact they do have celiac disease. So yeah, the recovery can be pretty quick. Um, it is, it's the knowledge and the diagnosis that is key. Right, okay. So is the converse true? If, if you have had it and then you think, right, I'll have a gluten-free diet, and then you have something, you mentioned it might be an ice cream. You know, you, it might be a lovely yeah. day. You think, oh, I just fancy an ice cream. So you have an ice cream, you chose poorly or there, was, there wasn't a good selection and there's some wheat in whatever you have, is it like then, uh-oh, here we go again. And, you know, the next day it's bad. Pretty often, yes. And okay. it, interesting as well. If somebody uh, didn't present with symptoms previously, but is diagnosed, follows their gluten-free diet, and then by accident decide, uh, has a bit of gluten, or just sometimes people can think, oh, it'll be all right, it's only a little bit. Um, and then actually, yeah, symptoms can be quite extreme. Mm. So uh, it's a gluten-free diet for life. There is no, it's not, and you're not doing it Monday to Friday and then having a nice bit of sourdough at the weekend. It doesn't work that way. It is gluten-free for life, uh, but do it. And it is probably the easiest ingredient to exclude from your diet that there is nowadays because of this trend for people yeah. to eat uh, less gluten and therefore the product range to be so good okay and so it if you cut out gluten are there any other concerns you know does does the body need gluten for other things you know do you have to you know, replace it with something else or can you just get rid of it and actually not worry no, it's not necessary to um, nutrition or to health. What gluten does, it makes wheat stretchy. So it allows when you make something like um, bread, it allows the, the uh, molecules to stretch and air get in and, and makes bread lovely and soft. But you can take gluten out of wheat and still make very good bread, biscuits, pasta, all of these sorts of things. So we don't need it. Uh, but for the vast majority of us, it doesn't do us any harm at all. Sure, I get it. All right. Something that so you, you, we touched on it earlier, the, the testing thereof. So if you're if you're worried, you think, oh, there's something going on here. Not quite sure what. Maybe I need to get a test. Um, what do you do? Make an appointment with your GP? Well, what you know, what are the options? Well, first. First thing I would do is go to the Celiac Insider site and have a look at the questions there. And that's going to help you decide if you want to, if you need to approach your GP. Normally, first step might be a blood test. Now, that's not necessarily conclusive, but it gives us a damn good clue that there, there may be something going on. And if the markers in your blood test suggest it looks like there's something going, you might be invited then for a biopsy, which is a very non-invasive um, uh, procedure to just take some cells from the gut. And that really is the gold standard. Some cells uh, from the gut, well, sounds like it might be fairly invasive actually. How do we, uh, how do we go you, about doing that? I mean, less than that you trousers than down. You it tends to be um, up one end or the other, but it, it's sort of fair, it, it, 
it, it's not surgery, put it that way. Oh. Uh, so, but it is really the gold standard in diagnosis. And the last thing you want to do is send someone on to a gluten-free diet for the rest of their lives unnecessarily. But as I say, you don't really get to that point until you are pretty sure this is what you're looking at. So you don't send someone off for a biopsy just because they're presenting with, um, you know, a suspicion. You kind of take some steps first yeah. before you get to but, that. So th that, that's not a test you can do at home, is it, this biopsy? You know, no. that, that, that's, that's a hospital trip. Absolutely, yeah. And, you, you know, you need to talk to your doctor about that. But as I say, what you can start doing is just keeping a record. If you do experience um, digestive symptoms, keep a record of what you're eating sure. and your symptoms. Maybe also take a look at the, the, the questionnaire I've mentioned and just have a fairly pragmatic approach to this. Um, because uh, clearly what we don't want to do is is frighten people, but clearly there are an awful lot of people who have no idea what's going sure. on. Um, and, and, and it could really be quite life-changing and life-saving. Like With that in mind, to, let me ask about the, the, that in mind, let me ask about the blood test. Is is that like a little prick test? Is it a drop of blood or do you need, again, do you need to go to the hospital and, you know, they take out quite a lot of blood? No, you can do that just at the surgery. It's a very easy, quick, simple, painless test, little pinprick, um, yeah. but nothing to get, uh, you know, uptight about. Certainly an easy thing to go and do. It's not like giving blood. It's just yeah. a very small sample that's needed. And then, as I say, there will be some markers in that blood that would indicate that there is an issue. But, of course, you do need to be consuming gluten right. for that to show. Okay. So it's not a gene test. Uh, do people, you know, can you test for the genes that are misbehaving? Unfortunately, not really at the moment, no. because we're not entirely clear what the marker would be. Um, we, I hope we get to that stage. That would be fantastic. Yeah. Um, there might even be some gene that. therapy involved in the future then. Who knows? Exactly. I mean, this is, again, if I just think in my short time um, of practicing as a dietitian, the way we deal with celiac disease has changed significantly. It's almost certainly going to in the future. But for the minute, that's about as good as we've got. OK. All right. So, look, you, you mentioned a couple of web websites that have very good information. Uh, if people are worried, want to know more, think they might have it, think a member of their family might uh, have celiac disease. Uh, tell us those again celiacinsider.co.uk and also celiacuk.com uh, both excellent sources of information excellent all right Nigel I think this is potentially really useful for a lot of people as you said a lot of people have celiac disease and don't even know it so I think this can potentially help many people so many thanks for your time really appreciate you um, inviting me on thank you Mike John Rawcliffe travelled from New Zealand to London, which is where I interviewed him, and he is CEO of the Unique Manuka Factor Honey Association, or UMFHA. Now, that's a bit of a mouthful, and I started off by asking him if I got his title correct. Spot on. Good, right. So, you are the Manuka Honey Man. So, who better to ask, what exactly is Manuka Honey? Because lots of people have heard of it, but what is it? 
Uh, it's a very unique honey. It's from New Zealand. It's from the tree Leptospermum scoparium. So it's, it's the common name is manuka, which is a Māori word. So it's a very special honey from New Zealand. All right. So what, what's special about it? The bees just get their nectar from the, the flowers on this tree. Is that is it as simple as that? Yeah, that's, that's correct. So what we did a few years ago is we, we acted like the bee and we went around and collected the nectar and we analysed the nectar. And we discovered there's over 2,300 unique markers or unique properties in this honey against any other honey from New Zealand. So we know it's very unique. We know it has these unique properties and bioactives that puts it into that health category and that's why we're talking today. So it's a very right, yeah, unique. That was, well, that was going to be my next question. That, so manuka honey is honey that's made from the flowers of this particular tree. Yeah. Uh, and then I was going, okay, what's special about it? So you started to answer that question with your 2,300 markers. Yeah, very special honey, very unique. And some of those markers are bioactive, which means it's, and so we're able to start to understand, analyse and realise the potential health benefits from this honey. Perhaps we should rewind a little bit. When you say marker, yeah. what, what do you mean for someone who is not a scientist or into, into honey? Very good question. We call them biomarkers. They're bioactive. They are markers of, in the honey that say we can analyse it. We know it's there. We can see it. We can analyse it. We can measure it. And we can ensure that the consumer is getting it. So those biomarkers are there to be able to measure and understand the potential health benefits of the same. All right, so, so they're, they're, if you like, a, a, a chemical, a, an element or something yep. which is in manuka honey, which is not in other things. Correct. Okay, so can you name some of these? Uh, yes, um, I won't get into the technical week, the simple terms. We don't need 2,300 of them, just, yeah. Yeah, I'll start at the top, yeah. No, there's, there's things like lipsparin which is uh, bioactive, that gets into the bloodstream, works through the body. There's methbloxyl, which has unique antibacterial activity. There's other those markers that relate to uh, anti-inflammatory effects. So it, it's a very complex honey, um, and it actually has these properties that are going to be very beneficial for the consumer. Okay, so are these things just in manuka honey and not in other honeys? Um, what we do know, because we analysed a whole set of honeys throughout New Zealand and some from over the world, things like heather honey and clover honey, and we realised that Manuka had 2,300 unique markers over and above any other honey we analysed. So, you know, we looked at, I don't want to get too technical, we used a thing called a mass spec and we were able to realise what is in behind it. It was like peeling it open and, and letting nature have a way of saying to ourselves, hey, this is what it's got and this is why it's so special. So it's high tech um, and pretty powerful technology to be able to identify this, these, these unique markers. See, I always thought honey was pretty simple, but you're saying it's made up of, you know, over 2,300 different things, dif different um, ingredients. Yeah, it's very, very complex. Um, um, surprisingly so from, from where it comes from but when you analyse it it's quite complex and there's synergies that happen between the markers and it's a wonderful journey to go down realising 40 years of research into this honey it's probably the most researched honey in the world I don't think there is a continent or a country of any major that hasn't done a full uh, look at this sort of honey within the UK itself there's a, there's a major body of research that has happened out of the UK on uh, manuka honey 
So it's it's a wonderful journey where researchers are enjoying analysing a natural product from a, a country that's clean, green, we're proud of ourselves, put all that together in a bottle. It's quite an important element of uh, the journey. So what, what questions are all these researchers uh, trying to answer? Uh, they're trying to answer... The, the first thing that the researchers looked at, and this was done by Professor Molan, and they tried to answer why it was so unique. So they took honey, normal honey, they took away its normal antibacterial activity and still found a unique antibacterial activity in this honey. And that was the starting point to understand that this honey is unique. So the researchers have gone further. They've looked at the anti-inflammatory effect that sues how the, the wound and that will actually decrease the inflammatory. And then there's immune stimulation that ensures that uh, it is able to recover and able to uh, move faster through the recovery phase. So that's what the researchers have been looking at. There's also bodies of research in terms of gut health, soothing the throat. So there's a lot going on in the research space, research space internationally on the same. So we've got antibacterial, anti-inflammatory, yeah. um, helping with uh, recovery from wounds and yeah. gut health. Yes. Okay. So, so for the, the, the first two, like antibacterial and anti-inflammatory, yeah. what do you do? Do you, do you uh, put it on your toes or do you smear it on your, your wound? Uh, definitely, I would not advise putting table honey on a wound, but there are uh, companies that have taken the honey. We call it a medical grade. They've uh, filtered out the pollen, ensure that it's able to be put into a, a wound treatment, a, a, a bandage, and applied accordingly. And so it's a specialised product. It's on the market here in the UK. Various companies use honey as part of a wound dressing. Right. Okay. So, so there's a big difference between kind of you using a, a product for a specific thing like using it in a wound dressing or something like that and then you know there's been some research that shows that it works and there's a big difference between that and spreading it on your toes and eating it and you being healthier or addressing certain problems because you're eating it. So what, what, what kind of things could it do for you if you're eating it and is that proven? Uh, yes, there's been research on eating the honey and soothing the throat, specifically to manuka honey. Uh, this was done in America, where it showed us um, this was for cancer patients that were um, uh, had difficulty eating. So they wanted the person to be able to have the radiotherapy, to have the radiotherapy. They wanted them to be able to be healthy, to be able to eat a lot, and be able to cope with that treatment uh, regime. So what they did is they gave them manuka honey other than normal opioids and other things to be able to soothe throat, and they found it equal to that. So it was very, very good at helping cancer patients have more food, which enabled them to have the, the treatment regime that was required. So that was a body of research done in America. So it shows that manuka honey is very effective in soothing the throat. Okay. Is, is, is there any, so that peer review published, is it? Uh, yes, it was, yes, by the Radiotherapy Ecology Group in America. Is, is there any similar research that shows that if I put a bit of manuka honey on my toast in the morning, it's going to do some other stuff for me? Uh, there's emerging research on gut health that's been done in Zealand and Otago University. Um, there's other research showing how some of those bioactives get into the, the bloodstream and what they do. So, yeah, there's, that is the work that's going on. Um, and there's further research we're contracting on soothing the throat as well to be published. Excellent. All right. So, because this is what 
interest people, I think, isn't it? You know, if, if, if I buy some money and put it on my toast, what's, what's it going to do for me? Um, so you've got a couple of things there. Uh, gut health and being good to your throat. Anything else? I think that's about it for now. That's where we're going. But there's more. It's pleasing that as we looked at honey, as I said, we acted like bees. We went to the nectar of the flower. We collected this nectar. We analysed it. And the more we've looked at it, the more opportunities seem to come from it. So it's a long, it's a long research is not easy, it's a long journey. It requires to be and this is all this research published. If, if I think, oh, this is wonderful, I'm going to try over this, but I'd like to um, check out some of these papers. Can I have a look at these, these papers? Is this research anywhere? Uh, yes, you can. I mean, the first body of research... Um, the first body of research uh, came from Peter Nolan, if you look at Waikato University there. If you look at research out of Cardiff University, Swansea here, uh, research out of Manchester University lately, Birmingham University. So there's a massive body of research already available um, in the UK um, that's right. been done by your own scientists. And that, you know, it's, that's quite pleasing that people have actually put the time and effort into this as well. Yeah, all right, so people really are looking at this uh, seriously. Because one, one big question that I guess is a question uh, that I have. Yeah, because we've got, I'm talking to you from um, just north of London in, in Hertfordshire. And, uh, you know, we make some pretty good honey in Hertfordshire. So um, is the Manuka honey better than homegrown Hertfordshire honey, some of this stuff? Um, I don't know. I have not looked at Hertfordshire honey. What I have looked at is that Manuka honey and a full range of honey. So I'm not out to um, undermine anyone else's honey. But what I do know is that Manuka honey has a whole set of unique properties over and above any other honey. And that's where it came in from. So, you know, it's, we're after to do our journey not to say ours is better than anyone else's. But Manuka is unique. It has these properties, and that's why the consumer has purchased this product, and that's why the researchers have focused on it. And it is the most researched honey in the world, without question. Well, certainly it is very popular. And just, just the fact that, you know, I, I had heard of it, you know, and it's made in New Zealand. Lots of people have heard of it. And, and as a result of that, you know, it, it's quite a big business, which has produced a whole other industry of... Uh, Manuka honey knockoffs, I think, doesn't it? Uh, the answer is yes. I mean, when you're successful, there's always those that are trying, let's call them the pretenders, who will take the name or take the opportunity and try to sell something they consider as the same, and it's not. It's not the same species, it's not the same plant, it's not from the same country. So, yeah, we, we face that quite a bit, but what we do have in place is a mark, it's a quality mark, it's on the bottle, that gives the... the the consumer, that confidence that they're buying this honey, and all that body of research is there behind this honey. So look for a yielding quality mark. That gives you the confidence that that body of research is behind this product. So if someone's selling what they call Manuka honey and it hasn't got this mark on, um, are they a crook? No, I'm not out to say they're crooks, but I'm saying you can have the consumer and have that extra confidence if they look at that quality mark. Okay. okay, all right. So, um, but, but I mean, I mean is, is that happening? Can, 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 I, can I get, get some money that I've been made in Hertfordshire and put a Manuka honey stamp on it? 
Oh, oh no, 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 that, that would be misleading the consumer. You have fair yeah. trade laws uh, that, that says it's likely to deceive. You would be deceiving the consumer. What's, What's very important is that the consumer spending you know, money on this honey, and they, they need to have the confidence that there's, there's a quality mark behind it to say yes, that is a, their money is well spent. And, and to know that we are challenging other companies that are putting manuka on a product that's not, not from New Zealand, not based on that research. Our own research shows that yes, that is happening around the world, and it's a problem, but there is a solution. The solution is look for a quality mark. Yeah, yeah. Because, because certainly, I, 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 um, when we, we, we bought, bought it, actually, yeah. we, we, are, we are we are consumers uh, of yours, I would say, um, as, 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 as I think, think uh, many, many people, people are. But this, this idea, idea of um, kind of Manuka knockoffs is a bit alarming. What does the what does the mark look like? like? Um, it's, it's a, 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 a the shape of the mark is the same as the, the high the, the, the uh, brick angle. Um, it's it's it's, uh, it's, it's a rich mark. It's got, it's got yellow and, and black. It's got UMF in the middle of it. So okay. that, that's, that's a rich. The thing to look for is UMF. That is a rich trademark. It's registered around, around the world, and we protect it, so we ensure that no one else can use it. So it's a quality mark that is protected, internationally recognised, and so it's on the bottle. You can have confidence it has the The honey you're buying has those unique properties that are backed up by that research. Sure. sure. So, so if, if people, people what, in, in the UK, UK or anywhere for that matter, so because, because people, people listen to this show um, all over, if, if they, they want, want to find where they, they can get, get hold of some, um, you know, which, which shop they need, need to go to, to because, you know, it's, it's very specialised, it won't be anywhere, anywhere. How, how, how can they find out where it's available? Um, first, first go online, you'll, you'll see a lot, a lot of companies are selling it online in the UK. Two, go, go to, to, I think I saw, saw some boots, boots um, on the way, way here to the studios. Uh, look, look, look for those sorts of shops, shops you'll find on it, find on it there. Okay. So, so that, that is a good advice there. there. And, and the, the other, other stuff, stuff we were talking, talking about, about, you know, what Manuka honey can potentially do for you. And also, and also some, some of the, uh, the research that, that proves this. If people want to study it all a little bit more, what is a good resource for John? To go, go for a starting resource, um, go, go to, to umf.org.nz and you will see on that website a page that gives you a good, uh, range, a good listing of a lot of the research around the world. So look, you know, look up the UMF uh, website and you will then go to a page on research. Look down that page, you'll see the significant body of research that's behind this product. Excellent. So, so John, John, thank, thank you, you very, very much, much indeed, indeed um, for, for chatting, chatting to us. Um, who, who, who else are you talking to? Talk to? Will you hear actually out of interest? interest. Um, a few other, we've got, got a couple of um, studio uh, TV things, things to do, and we've got, got some other radio stations, stations we're talking to. We've just, just been, been speaking to uh, two of your key researchers in the UK whilst here over the weekend, um, and we're also um, talking to those that are in the marketplace at the moment, distributors and so forth. So it's been a very busy three days. As much, as much as you can get out of three days. days. And, and um, we're here we're regularly to um, help and support the market for this very, very unique product. Excellent. Well, maybe next time we'll have to get one of the researchers, researchers on. That, that could be very, very interesting. interesting. But, but for now, John, John thank, thank you very, very much indeed for chatting. Thank you. Thank you very much to my guests on this week's show. And they were dietitian Nigel Denby talking about celiac disease and John Rawcliffe 
talking about Manuka honey. And of course, thank you to you for listening. If you were listening on a podcast version, please please do the like thing and uh, encourage your friends to listen as well. And do have a healthy week. Until next week. That was the Relaxed Back UK show with me, Mike Dill. Thank you for listening and please do join us again next time.